0: Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Would you turn with me to Ruth, chapter one? You may not even have to turn with me if you don't have your Bibles in your journal. You should have received a copy of Ruth 1 when you came in. If you did not receive that, please raise your hand and someone will bring that to you if you don't have a Bible. I want to invite you to take notes. I want to invite you to um, not take notes on your phone if you feel like that will be a distraction. I want to invite you to put your phone down for a minute as we open up the Word together. Today, I simply want to invite you into the first part of this ancient story. I want us to bring our stories to this one. And we're actually going to, I know the text just flashed on the screen for a minute, but we're actually not gonna have any of the text on the screen. I want to invite you just to turn your attention to that page and to the scriptures if you're using your own Bible. And as we go through, what I'm gonna do right now is revolutionary, wild creativity, pastoral ingenuity. I'm going to walk us slowly through this text. You ready? All right. Ruth chapter 1. Why are we opening up Ruth? Some of you didn't even know that was a book of the Bible at Christmas. This is, by the way, not where the Christmas narratives are. This is not where uh, a traditional Advent narrative usually brings us. But there's a reason we're going to go to Ruth. First off. You have the first five books of the Bible called Torah. Can you say Torah? Then you have Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. It's this little book, four chapters, and in the story, like most of the scriptures, there are all sorts of layers and subtlety and nuance. And so as the story opens, I want you to notice how much narrative there is just packed into the first couple lines. Ready? In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So first off, there's a famine, and there's a man from Bethlehem. Now Bethlehem, in Hebrew, Bethlehem, in Hebrew, uh, bet means house, and lechem means bread, house, bread. So there's a man who lives in the house of bread, and there's a family who lives in the house of bread, and they don't have any bread, no bread. Famine. I'm not just kind of being silly here, like there's a reason some of this is in here, and why it's written the way that it's written. The time period here is in the time of Judges. For context, we can read at the very end of the book of Judges, which is not a casual read, not a light read. Many people who... kind of conjure a modernistic way of reading the Bible, go to Judges to go, this is why Christianity is so awful as it tells the story of really, really awful things. And in Judges, the last verse of Judges, it says this, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you're brand new to the story of the scriptures, there is this Hebrew tribe, this Israelite people who God has intended to be a blessing to the whole world. And it is through them that we meet Jesus and it is through them and their story that we are grafted into this larger family. God, like he always does, begins with a seed, begins with a person and a people. God does not power up. God begins with an individual and individuals and begins to unleash blessing and love and generosity through them. And in this moment in Jewish history, there um, is a deep, profound degree of brokenness. The time of Judges in many ways is like a cycle of violence. When these people have been conquered by one foreign oppressor after another, They'd be conquered and oppressed, and then from within their ranks, somebody would rise up, and somebody would deliver them and drive off the evil oppressor, give them a moment of peace until the next neighbor came in and conquered them and crushed them, and then there'd be misery and suffering until they cried out, and then another would rise, and there's this cycle of crying out, having someone move to a place of liberation— You get a little relief. Things are good. And then you begin to do the very things that actually led you to a place of oppression in the first place. Many have called this the myth of redemptive violence. We see this in the story again and again. We see this in our day today, do we not? How quickly the oppressed become oppressor. How quickly. So it also sounds a bit, when I think about the story of Israel, it sounds a bit like just (laughs) i don't know more clever way to put this like being a human (laughs) right these ancient stories they work on this national political level but they also work on a personal one it's like you get a little little relief and things are good and then we make a mess of things you become inattentive to what's happening in your own heart and you end up sort of enslaved again to these things that you need to cry out for freedom from and so there's this family Living in the house of bread, there's a famine. They don't have any bread, and they go to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, let's talk about Moab, because I know that's what you wanted to do this Sunday morning. You waited in that long line to get into the mall. I just heard about that, by the way. Good gosh, sorry. Consumerism, it's not our fault. (laughs) Just kidding. Moab. The Moabites were arch enemies of the Israelites arch enemies of this Hebrew tribe. The Moabites were like the evil neighbors. In fact, there's a whole strand of scholarship about the Moabites and Moabites, how they practiced child sacrifice. They were understandably viewed as repugnant people. And depending on the the year and the century, there was different interactions with how kind of basic and, and quasi, not friendly is the wrong word, but how much they tolerated each other and how much they didn't. There's Famine. In one verse, there's a famine. There are forces beyond these people's control at work. There's not enough food, and they have to leave home. They have to essentially move into a form of exile, trying to find food, and where do they go? This family goes to Moab, their worst enemy. Have you ever had one of these experiences where you were in trouble and you needed help and you had to reach out to your enemy? to that estranged relative you had to make that call to that person it's the last person that you want to call and you're so desperate that you actually call them Have you ever needed money that sort of humiliating feeling creeps over you for having to ask that person the only person who you know might be able to help you out with this is that person you're at odds with anyone ever been there these stories, they work at a national political level. There's a larger story that the storyteller's trying to tell us about Ruth and about Naomi and about these characters we're going to be introduced to over the next couple weeks, but these stories are also deeply personal. They're displaced. Have you ever been displaced because of forces that are at work way beyond your control? I want to invite you to lean in and come into this story. So this is the book of Ruth. This is how it starts. It starts with a family on the move. We're only one verse in, guys. Verse two. The man's name was Elimelech. By the way, that means God is my king, which we'll get to that later. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were at Milan and Kilian. They were from Bethlehem, and they went to Moab and lived there. So when they're in this foreign land with foreign language and cultures and systems and all that stuff that makes your life, your life is gone. And now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies, we read, and she was left with her two sons. This family, because of famine, go to the evil empire next door, trying to find food. And while they're there, this woman's husband dies, and she's left with just her two sons. Two sons marry Moabite women. This is a big deal. One was named Orpah, which I, every time I read it, I've been studying this for the last couple of weeks, I just see Oprah every time. And then I heard a story that that actually is Oprah's real name, is actually Orpah. It's even on her birth certificate apparently, and it just got started said wrong for so long it became Oprah. Random side note. After they had lived there, that's going to be the only takeaway from the sermon anyone has. Did you hear my pastor said, Op-o's. Oprah was Oprah. After they had lived there 10 years, the two sons also die. Great story. The two sons die and Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So she's in this foreign land, in exile essentially, and miles from home. And then her two sons die after her husband's die notice just very quickly all of the dudes die <laughs> the story about a woman in an ancient story thousands of years ago in a patriarchal society there is a story about a woman with a woman at the center of the drama Women, as we will begin to read past this week, control and drive the narrative. There is a great man who enters the story in a bit, but this is such a great story about a woman and all the ladies said. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people back home by providing food for them, stop there the name she uses by the way for the lord is a particular name it's this name yahweh and for these people the exodus story is their defining story in fact there's a whole school of scholarship that basically says this is the story of the whole scriptures and you're gonna have a tough time understanding any of the new testament without being able to palm like a basketball the exodus story This is her story about her real people that were enslaved at a real place at a real time and they experienced liberation and release from captivity. Real people in real places being liberated from what enslaved them. And so you can see why that kind of story has endured. It's about freedom, it's about flourishing. It was the story told amongst uh, the slaves in chattel slavery here in the US. It's about the release from captivity. So the name that was given to God in this verse right here hearing that back home, the land that God had promised them, actually the famine was turning and God was beginning to bring new life into that space, even though his, their people had been so disloyal and unfaithful. She says, Yahweh, which gets spelled in our English Bible, L-O-R-D. So when you read, Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people You can see this has sort of revolutionary tones to it. Oh my goodness, is God doing again what he has done before? Again, let's move from this, the geopolitical meta-narrative here, to our lives. We know about this, right? We know this story. We know the story of deliverance from oppression. We know about, about the grace that comes in getting help in our helplessness. A lot of us know about about the power that comes when we're powerless. All my friends who are in recovery in this room, you know this story. This is like the story. How do the 12 steps start? It starts with what? Powerlessness. This This is where all the amazing stuff happens in life. You come to the end of yourself. You're enslaved in some way. You're moving on your own steam and your own power and you've been trying to sort of muscle your way through whatever it is to sweat your way out and it's when you hit the wall, it's when you crash, it's when you're face down on the bathroom floor and you cry out. And it's that cry throughout the Bible, literally the cry that inaugurates and kickstarts liberation again and again and again we should do a series on that. This has been the story for a long, long time. So Naomi is in exile, but she hears the familiar old story. When we're at our worst, we got help. And so what does she do? She and her daughters-in-law turn to go home. But the husbands have died. So these women are with Naomi, but the connection that they had in any bloodline way, in any real thoughtful, tangible, is gone. So she and her daughter-in-laws are prepared to return home. But what's interesting is it's only Naomi's home, right? The daughter-in-law's home are in Moab. It's not the home of her daughter-in-laws. It would actually be a foreign land to them. And so we read, with her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living, and set out on the road and would take them back to the land of Bethlehem of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead, my sons, and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And before you get all tripped up on this, we sometimes like to read our modernistic way and way of life back into the scriptures. It was critical, and we'll get to this in a minute, that they found a husband. And Naomi is like, guys, this is your best chance. It's to, to stay here in Moab. Don't come with me. Naomi's essentially saying, I've got nothing more for you here. My son has died, and so our bond has died. And if you go into like some, again, the legal situation of the day, there's really nothing left between us. You're actually from here. If you go back with me, you'd be a foreigner. You'd be going back to a foreign land. You owe me nothing. It's actually a very sweet moment. And then she kissed them goodbye and wept aloud. And they said to her, We'll go back with you to your people. They're like, no, 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 we're coming with you, Naomi. Then Naomi said, return home. Why would you come with me? Am I gonna have any more sons who could, who could become your husbands? Am I gonna have any more sons that could become your husbands? Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons. By the way, this is meant to be funny in like an ancient, funny way. Are you tracking with me the story? Essentially, Naomi is like, even if I got married, like tonight, and we had sex, and I got pregnant, then I gave birth to two sons, are you really going to wait until they grew up and then you marry them? It's funny. No, it's better for me than for you, because the Lord's hand is turned against me. So Naomi's, Naomi is headed home. But for her, this trauma and this loss of her husband and her sons, it shaped the way she sees everything. Everything. Do you feel Naomi's misery? I really want to keep inviting you throughout this short sermon to keep drawing in. Do you feel this? Some of you know, like, acutely what I'm talking about. You know about loss, and you know about betrayal. You know what it is to experience the death of a loved one or when somebody leaves you. when You've experienced that kind of pain that you had no control over and it shapes the whole way you see everything. Maybe you were stabbed in the back. Maybe there was some intense criticism that rocked you. And Naomi's just going, this whole thing is upside down. This whole thing is stacked against me. And we read that she then wept aloud. The sisters the, the sorry this the, the daughters in law they wept aloud, and then Orpa kissed her mother in- law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her, so look, said Naomi, look, Ruth, your sister in law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you where you go." I will go and where you stay I will stay and your people will be my people and your God will be my God and where you die I will die and there I will be buried so may the Lord deal with me be it ever so severely if even death separates you and me guys I always wonder when I read this story do you ever think Naomi's like pump the brakes Like, that was a little much, Ruth. (laughs) She's like, please just go home. This is such a classic line, by the way. I think it's in weddings that this gets quoted, where you go, I'll go. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she suddenly stops urging her. Now think about what the storyteller's doing here. It's almost like Orpah is the practical one. She's like, why would we? I mean, she does go with her. She's like, I want to go with you. I want to stay with you. And Naomi convinces her. This is not a shot at Orpah. She is the practical one. Why would we go back with this bitter old woman back to the land that we've never lived in when the connection that we even had with her is gone because our husbands are dead? It's almost like Orpah does the realistic, pragmatic thing. And it's like, okay, you know, I wept a bit. It's okay. Naomi, peace be with you. But what's really interesting here is Ruth has the opposite response. Orpah's is the pragmatic one. Orpah has not been like, "Yes, yeah, screw you, Naomi." Like, no, she's walked with her. She even pleads once. She weeps with her, and she's like, "Okay, you're right. We will. Thank you. Blessings." This is so deeply countercultural. Nobody would do this, especially a woman who, in those days, in those times, in those places, their legal rights were next to nothing. And without some marital connection to a husband or to a patriarch, to a larger clan, she's unprotected, and she's vulnerable, and she's at risk of all sorts of exploitation. Why would you do that? We read a lot of the marriage laws and the way things are set up in these different... um, commitments that brothers and fathers make and relatives in the clan make to women. We can read sometimes this backwards way of thinking. They are some of the most pro-women laws and ideas that the world honestly has ever seen. If you'd like a book on that, I'd love to give it to you. Why would Ruth do this? Why would you do the least sensible, most dangerous thing and bind yourself on an unknown journey with this old woman who apparently is pretty cranky and bitter, to say the least, for good reason. Clearly, she has this sense that you and I, Naomi, we are bound together. I don't really care what dangers or risks lie ahead. This is the way forward. Have you ever had that sense? Have you ever had some sense within you that there's like a journey into the known, unknown, and the people around you and the people closest to you are like, why would you do that? Why would you spend the money? Why would you go there? Why would you pursue those ideas? Why would you leave this way of living? How would you leave that job that pays so well? The healthcare is amazing. Like the hours are great. (laughs) Why would you leave this known for this unknown? Right, in so many ways, this is the story of everybody who's ever gone on some sort of hero's journey, is it not? Why does she leave home in Moab to head to this land, to this place that's just recovering from a famine, this place where there is no food? Is that the first place you think, like, hey, 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 I'll go there. And at some deep level, it's like you can feel it, the resonance with her story. All those times when those around you were making practical arguments for a particular course of action, and yet something within you went, no, I've got to stay the course. I've got to stay the course. The door doesn't even seem wide open. Sometimes we talk about, like, well, if God opens the door, I'm going to walk through it. Like, God isn't the only one who opens doors, friends. The devil opens doors. Right? Like, what door are you going to go through? And there's this sense sometimes that, like, the hard thing doesn't always mess, does not often mean that it's the wrong thing there's something there there's something there it's like Ruth is feeling like I need to see this through I need to see where it takes me there's like some sort of deep internal magnetism or compulsion but there's been a famine there I know it's like there's different gods and it's a different culture and a different custom and a different language am I not gonna like not just not gonna know anybody am I gonna be received Look, Ruth, you're going to be this Moabite woman who used to be married to Naomi's son. Do you really want that to be your ID? Do you realize you're going to be a foreigner, an immigrant? You're going to be like a kind of nobody. And as a woman, like, I know, I know, I know, I know. You can like hear the sub-narrative. But where you go, I go, and your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. You can see why the story of Ruth just kind of hung around. Do you find yourself anywhere in here? Have you ever been displaced because of forces beyond your control? Have you ever found yourself with a full life, and then all of a sudden, the people around you are gone? They graduated, they left, they divorced, they died, they moved, you moved, and suddenly, the people who were your people aren't there, and you're not home, but you have this sense that you need to be headed home. It's all here. So Ruth is determined to go with her. So the two women went on their way, and they came to Bethlehem of Judah. We'll get back to that. They came to the house of bread. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? This is the woman who left here, and she had the two, like, cute little boys. And they did that hard thing and they went to Moab because they didn't feel like they had any other options. They're like, Naomi. You ever met somebody who's just like not in the mood for your like optimism and joy? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's Naomi. Naomi goes, don't call me Naomi. <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara the almighty well by the mari means bitter because the almighty has made my life very bitter i went away full i came back empty once again in bethlehem this village there would have been all these people who grew up with her and the famine hits her and her husband and her boys they leave these people would have known a healthy vital woman with these kids And she leaves because they have the strength to go and find food. And yet this bitter woman returns a widow and a grieving mother of two sons who've died as well. And we read, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Which, by the way, Bible nerds out there, many think that this right here, that line, is like the theme statement, the, like, the, like, thematic nail in, like, the the story. This is the center point. The whole story is she went away full, Came back empty. It's the story of God refilling her again. Naomi, it's really clear this is the fault of God. God must be against against me. I know who did this. Any of you ever just struggled, struggled with what God seems to have going on in your life? It's interesting, by the way, Naomi's theology here, though, is solid. A little inside baseball for those who are like, have been around the church for a little bit. So often in our like particular stream of Christianity, like we don't do this very well. Like this suffering thing. Naomi's theology is actually solid. She's bitter and she's angry. But I think there's something in all of us that goes, that's not right, you don't talk to God like that. Like, are you kidding? Have you read the Bible? People are always talking to God like this. People are ticked off at God regularly. Regularly. And they are not afraid to say it. Naomi is unshaken and sure about three things. God exists, God is sovereign, and God has done this to her. (laughs) So let's keep going. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. Names were a big deal, and you would in so many ways attach meaning and life story to your name. And by the way, she keeps using this word Yahweh the Lord has afflicted me. That liberation word. So she's like, oh, the one who liberates, the one who frees people from whatever we're enslaved to, that's the one, the liberating God who has pulled us out of captivity. Again and again, that Exodus story, he's the one who's did this. That's the one who's called me pain and heartache. And she says, the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Is there any point in this story so far that you're just like, I know that? I know that. When was the last time you asked yourself the question, which way do I go from here? When was the last time you asked yourself the question, what's the right thing to do? Have you ever been through anything this like degree of pain and suffering have you ever had a moment where there was something within you like a honing beacon that says go that way even when the closest people around you were like don't go that way maybe you could do this for a moment like put your hand on your heart can you find yourself anywhere in here Can you find any Ruth within yourself this morning? Can you find any Naomi within yourself? Anybody ever just want to change your name to something else because you're just so freaking bitter? Anybody ever found yourself convinced that the system, the game, the universe, whatever, was rigged against you? This is the beginning of Ruth. the story has endured in part because the story is a profoundly human one. And so we are at our last verse. The end of chapter one. So Naomi returned to Moab accompanied by Ruth the Moabite. That's her name, by the way. Ruth the Moabite. When you're in Moab, they just call you Ruth. When you're in Bethlehem, you're Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the outsider. God has a funny way of constantly calling the outsider in to call his people back to faithfulness. So why is this book called Ruth? I want to begin to land the plane um, by going back to verse 6. And I want you to see a few things about Ruth. Verse 6 is where Naomi gets the word, the Lord has visited his people and given them food. So she decides again to return to Bethlehem with her two daughters in law. Tries to persuade them to not go with her. And this little section here is the longest part of the narrative, and it's gold. And I think there are two reasons why the writer devotes so much space to Naomi's effort to make Ruth and Orpah go back. The first one is Naomi's ache. The first scene this emphasizes Naomi's misery. We are supposed to enter her pain. Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in the womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. I'm too old to have a husband. She has nothing to offer them. My daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone before me. Don't come with me. Don't come with me. Your life will be as bitter as mine. We're meant to enter into this part of the pain. And then two And this is the key thing I want us to see in this section is Ruth's faithfulness. Ruth's faithfulness to Naomi. Verse 14 says that Orpah kissed Naomi goodbye, but Ruth, in one translation says, clung to her. Can you imagine that for a minute? Just clinging to her. Not even another heartfelt request in verse 15 can get Ruth to leave. This is really wild since Ruth just heard Naomi's dark description of her future with her. Ruth stays with her in spite of this hopeless future of widowhood and childlessness. Naomi paints the future so dark and Ruth took her hand and walked into it with her. You ever had to walk somebody home? i mean like re- like home home like a friend who was like a, who had like left not just the path of jesus like had left the path of sanity you ever had to walk somebody home you ever had to resist the ever destructive reality that seems to press in on us of like forming boundaries to keep our like inner world nice and sweet and peace, and we don't pick up our cross. I love boundaries, by the way. But my goodness, we have used that word to keep us from doing the hard thing so often. These amazing words from Ruth. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go, and where you stay, I will stay. The more you take some time with these words, the more amazing they become. Ruth's commitment is astonishing. Your God will be my God. Naomi just said that the hand of the Lord has gone against her. Naomi's experience of this God that is not Ruth's God has been bitterness, and she's clear about it. But that doesn't deter Ruth. Ruth completely forsakes her religious heritage and makes the God of Israel her God. Somehow or another, we don't know, Ruth has come to trust Naomi's God in spite of Naomi's bitter experiences. This woman, Ruth, is wild. Wild! A woman of faith, a faith in God that sees beyond the present bitterness and ache. A faith in Yahweh, the liberator, the one who has delivered his people again and again, and who is up to something bigger than just their own individual circumstances. She has a faith that leads to a freedom from the securities and comforts of this world. She has a faith that leads to a courage, to venture into the unknown and the strange. And she has a faith that leads to a sort of um, radical commitment to the relationships that God has sovereignly put in her life. It's been said that the story of Ruth is a story of trusting the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God, the, 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 the reality of God being in some way over all and in all in the ordinary things of life. It's been said the story of Ruth invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day hardships and joys. And yes, there is joy coming in this story. <laughs> the day-to-day hardships of our lives and then how those hardships and joys connect to the larger story that God's telling in the world. I remember someone asking me, Andrew, if you, uh, if you dying today would mean more people came to know God, if it meant that in some way um, God's purposes would be fulfilled, like before you reach your old age, would you want that? That's what it is, by the way, to tie your story to the larger story, is to be able to say yes to those kinds of questions. That makes sense? It's hard. You may not agree with it, but. God sovereignly weaving our stories into a bigger one. This is the story of Ruth. And we see this actually as the chapter ends with this deceptively simple statement. The last, last part of the last verse in one that you have in your sheets. They came to Bethlehem, to Judah at the beginning of the barley harvest. You're like, Andrew, how are you gonna preach this? Bethlehem and the barley harvest. If you know the story of Ruth, you know this. Right there in that verse, you have the place, Bethlehem, the time, the beginning of the harvest season, and the means, the actual barley, that God—through which God is going to provide. I won't ruin the next bit for you, but if you ever wanted an example of God's sovereign trustworthiness, we have one in this story. I will spoil the very end of Ruth, though. It ends with God using Ruth to start the family that would produce King David, the man after God's own heart, and then eventually Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, Ruth shows up in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth's journey to Bethlehem invites all of us this Advent to look forward to another girl's journey to the same place. That place where she was to have Jesus. The city of Bethlehem, which Ruth and Naomi reached without hope, except in God, became the birthplace of Jesus, the Son of God, in whom all the nations would hope. Hope, the word of the day. Christian hope is the confident expectation that God has got you and God has got this. And so we opened the altar this morning All that means, by the way, if you're new with us, is like we just like create some space to process before we go home. And we create space to receive prayer because sometimes we need someone else. And I invite us into this time around a couple questions. Where do you need some hope this morning? Where do you need to trust the bigger story that's being told around you? You are so swallowed up, and I get it. Ruth gets it. Naomi gets it. The storyteller gets it. Where we get swallowed up by the circumstances around us. And so we either move to bitterness or we move to numbing. We move to anger or we check out. And God this morning is like, hey, hey, it's okay to feel these things again. What would it look like? I just sense God's like tapping some of us on the shoulder. What would it look like if you trusted me a little bit? What would it look like if you trusted me a little bit? What would it look like if you, just, if you came alongside me and trusted me a little bit? The confident expectation that God has got this. Where do you need to trust that whatever it is, that thing, where do you need to trust that that thing doesn't have the last word? Holy Spirit, would you come? I love this prayer. I don't know more how to end a sermon than with that prayer. Come Holy Spirit. Would you minister to our hearts? Would you use these prayer folks up front to out minister Maybe you don't even have the strength to get up right now. God, I ask you, tap friends on the shoulders right now who know what people are going through. Give us a boldness to actually love one another this morning, to bless one another, to encourage one another, to take, to to be Ruth and take Naomi by the hand and walk her back, walk with her back to the land with whatever slim hope Naomi has in her bones, because she has hope, that's why she's going home, that the God of liberation, the God who sets us free will do it again. And Lord, on the other side of Christmas day in the world that we live, Lord, we know that you have come and that, Lord, we have taken part because of you in the greatest Exodus, Lord, we have the, the, the guilt and shame and sin have been removed from us. The question marks about who you are and how you see us, Lord, is removed. We were enemies of you in our mind and you have come to show us, show us on the cross, show us in your resurrection the way to life. And so I just pray hope over this room right now. Hope has come. Hope will ultimately come again. May hope come here and now in this space.